1: Welcome to the Total Soccer Show, your final Total Soccer Show episode of the week. My name is Taylor Rockwell. With me today to talk Olympic qualifying, to talk U.S. senior roster, and to talk the UEFA Champions League draw is a man who will harbor no slander against Tassani Dodson. It's Joe Lowry. <laughs> yeah. Hello, Joe. Hello, Taylor. That is 100% factual. <laughs> so, uh, last night after the USA's 1-0 win over Costa Rica in their opening game of Olympic qualifying, Joe and I did a little... Little over an hour uh, on stereo about the game. We did a kind of quick take, hot take. We answered some questions, and we. Left it with, what are some things that we maybe need to review? What are some things we want to go back and watch? One of the only things I think we we mildly, not even definitely, but mildly disagreed on is I was a little bit cooler on Hassani Dotson's performance. Joe was a little bit more positive. Joe was having none of it, and we'll find out <laughs> uh, where we are later on in this episode. Uh, as I said, we're also going to talk about the senior U.S. men's roster, which has been released for their upcoming friendlies. We're going to talk UEFA Champions League draw, which has now taken place. But first, we're going to start with... With that Olympic qualifier, Joe, before we even get to tactics or lineups or roster or anything that happened in the game, how exciting was it to just watch meaningful soccer? We talked about this at the very beginning of our stereo show. Some folks might have missed that one, and we know that uh, our general audience wasn't listening, so we should probably uh, revisit that one for a moment because I was pretty pumped to watch this game and have it matter.
2: It was fun, right? It was fun, but also yep. not fun. And I, and that's also what that. soccer is. That's what watching <laughs> soccer that you care about is. It's, it's really great. Yeah, man. When things are going well or, or the build up to it's really great. And then you kind of turn into a little bit of a nervous wreck during it. And I, I, I mean, I wasn't, I wasn't biting my fingernails or anything in this one, but it reminded me of what it feels like to watch a soccer game that you care about. And that's a pretty cool feeling after how strange and weird and, and, terrible in some ways the last year's been. Yeah, man,
1: that that's really well said that it was like fun and not fun. And that is such, sadly, unless you're like a Bayern or Barcelona fan, i in right, Barcelona right. lately, but maybe just a Bayern fan. Like, sadly, there is always going to be those moments of like, ooh, this isn't going well. And you're right that even at like as a like, like supporting Manchester United, I have those moments where it's like, oh, this isn't going well. They're like, oh, I hope they see this game out. But it still is never really going to resonate with me as much as as I think U.S. teams will. And so in this game, when the U.S. goes up, uh, I, I was out of my chair. I was really excited when they scored. I was really nervous. I, I don't think I was chewing my nails. I'm looking at them. They seem like they're okay. But I was definitely really anxious, especially in that second half, as it felt like Costa Rica could get back into it. They did have a few chances. Luckily, Jason Christ made the decision to start a wall in goal, so they were not able to score. But I'm with you. It was a it was a pretty Exciting game. I think partially because the game itself was just exciting and partially because it
2: was just nice to, uh, to feel feelings about soccer in that way again. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And the U.S. get that, that 1-0 win over Costa Rica in this game. And it's such a weird tournament. It's such a weird opportunity, yeah, a weird roster because it's a U-23, technically a U-24 competition because it got pushed back a year for when these games were supposed to happen in 2020. So it's already a strange age group. It's not, it's not a competition that clubs have to release players for. So the guys you see on this roster are mostly MLS based players who aren't in season right now, which is, which is great that they can be called in and play in these games. But also we saw it in this match against Costa Rica. That hurts that they're not in season because they don't look sharp. They don't look fit. Yeah. They faded down the stretch against Costa Rica. Whereas Costa Rica were still going because 85% of Costa Rica's roster is in season right now. I think 17 of their 20 players. That's probably more than 85%. I'm not, I'm not doing math right now, but it, it, a large portion of Costa Rica's roster plays either in Costa Rica, which has a league that's going right now, or they play in Europe, which is also going right now in most countries. So a really strange juxtaposition in terms of where these players are at in their calendar years, but that just added to the entertainment because it's a weird time. It's a weird game and it was fun, man. It sure was. I'm gonna take a shot and say it's 85%, uh, is my poor
1: math, uh, and I am not good at math. That's so, exactly what uh, I said, so I, I, I think I, I nailed that it. one. Wow. There we go, man. There we go. All right. Um, Joe, let's 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 start with that roster. Let's start with that starting 11 then, because as you said, it is a strange one. Uh, the Soccer 101 episode that I have now finally published is about why Olympic soccer isn't as popular as the World Cup, sort of getting into the history of the Olympics and, and soccer at the Olympics, the changes that have been made, how we kind of got to the point where we're at today. And as you've already said, what that tends to mean is that we're not getting... All of the possible players that could be playing for this Olympic team were getting the players that were made available. And even in some cases, we had MLS teams not releasing their players. Atlanta United held back, what, two or three? So we aren't getting the full strength team that we could possibly be getting. But we did get some good performances. We did get some exciting names in that starting 11. Who were you most excited to see in the 11 for whatever reason? Could be because we didn't see it coming. Could be because we did and we just wanted to see them
2: play. There were four guys that I was really excited to see of this starting group. So David Ochoa in goal. We talked about him on our preview show. We didn't expect yep. him to start necessarily. We kind of thought JT Marcinkowski was going to start. But Ochoa comes in as the youngest player on this roster. Christ made that decision late in camp to give him the opening start. And he was great. So, But even before we knew he was great, I was excited because I have really liked him in the past. We saw him at the U-20 World Cup in 2019 where he took that starting job from Brady Scott midway through the group stage. And then we've also seen him in USL for the Real Monarchs. He's won a championship starting in goal for them and is just waiting for a chance at RSL. So I was really excited for Ochoa. I was really excited for Mauricio Pineda. I called him the best passing center back on the roster before this game. And I I still think that's true, but we'll get into that more later. Sam Vines (laughs) is the third one for me just because you and I both really liked him after January camp. And even dating back to January camp 2020, where that game against Costa Rica's senior team was in February... Sam Vines, I thought, was was pretty fun in that game as well. And then number four, Jesus Ferreira, just because he really is a factor for the senior team right now as well. He's not just a U23 slash U24 player. He's a guy that Greg Berhalter is looking at almost as the prototype for what he wants that number nine position to look like. And so the more chances we get to see him for a U.S. team, I think the better.
1: Yeah, I'm going to echo some of what you've already said, starting with Evan Ochoa, who is a player that, like, going back to the Top Drawer Soccer show and my conversations with Travis Clark, that's a player that he's been really excited about for a very long time. And there's an element of, like though I have seen an Ochoa playing professional soccer and playing for various US youth national teams, there's an element of like the Josh Gatness thing of like, I know there's this very good goalkeeper out there who I haven't really seen play that much, but I know he's there and people seem really hyped about him. Chituro Adonze at senior level is another one of those like, I know there's a good goalkeeper that I keep hearing about, but I haven't yet gotten the chance to see him really, but you're right we saw Ochoa with that U20 World Cup squad, uh, and, and even then it was sort of this like, okay I'm excited to see what comes next and to see this be the thing that comes next, at least in my mind, and that thing being a shutout performance where he does so many different things that I really, really enjoyed. Not just making saves, but his positioning, his decision-making, the gamesmanship, a little bit of conca-cafery, some trash-talking. It was a complete performance. So I loved what I saw from uh, David Ochoa, and I continue to back Sam Vines. I drafted him in my Quidditch team oh, when, yeah. when I did that show. Uh, I also drafted Yunus Musa, and I will forever take credit for him now declaring to play for the U.S. I'm assuming <laughs> those two things are linked. Of course. But I feel really good about drafting Sam Vines, because in this game... I don't think anybody necessarily, aside from David Ochoa, had uh, like an A-plus game, but I thought Sam Vines did well, given that he was tasked with getting forward and helping create opportunities, and he does for the goal. But he was also tracking Costa Rica's most dangerous player and dealing with a, a pretty consistent overload in that second half, and I thought he did about as well as he could have. So I'm with you on those two for sure, and then Jesus Ferreira. Oh, did I want to see me some Jesus Frere? Because it felt like he's strangely a senior player in this team. Uh, you could hear him on mic at times coaching people and talking to people about their positioning and where they need to be. I thought his positioning across the board was w- was pretty solid as well. So, yeah, I'm with you on three of those four in terms of how enthusiastic I was. The Pineda one is just because I wasn't as familiar as you. But I-, I think we're on the same page about the players that we did get to see. We did not get to see Julianez, uh quick mention there. Uh, he was forced to withdraw from this camp. Uh, we, I don't believe it was a personal issue. I think it was an injury-related thing Correct. where they just weren't sure he was going to be up for the fitness and – in this competition where there is going to be a lot of heat and a lot of humidity and a lot of running, you do have to have as strong of a team as you can and as physically competitive of a team as you can. So I do understand why he has to leave, why Tanner Testman comes in. Still sad not to see him in the eleven, uh, but I'm sure we'll see Ulianez in the near future once again.
2: I'm going back just a minute or two here, but listeners, for those of you who, ha- who had... Taylor turns Josh Gatt into an adjective on your TSS bingo cards. <laughs> Go ahead and uh, cross that one off right now. You are one fifth of your way to bingo. Congrats. Uh, I, I, I just, he's, he's one of those, I tweeted this a while ago about
1: players that like we heard about for so long. And never really saw or there were players that were kind of rumored to be eligible yeah. and it got turned into like players who didn't meet their potential, which isn't what I was looking for. But there was like Josh Gat, the other one that comes to mind is uh, Evgeny slash Eugene Starikov, who was playing in the Russian Premier League, I think still is, uh, but never really like made it to that next level where he was a regular with the U.S. national team. So I think of those types of players as almost like mythical, hyped up, <laughs> talked about, but like you can't really find footage of them and you're not really sure how good they are. Uh but David O'Cho, we now know is is very, very good, so that makes me happy.
2: <laughs> I love it, Taylor. I love it. That's
1: good. Uh, so Joe, all right, so we've talked a little bit about the team, about some of the names we had. We did see the US in a 433. I thought I continued to think there was a chance we might see a sort of Jason Christ 442, a little bit of a diamond there. We did not, which then kind of connects to the idea that this is a team trying to replicate what the senior team is doing with that same general shape. Greg Berhalter doesn't love saying that it's a 4-3-3 or any sort of specific formation, but roughly speaking, that's what it was. Joe, were there
2: other similarities you saw uh, between this team and the senior team? I thought it was almost a carbon copy of what we saw from Greg mm-hmm. Berhalter starting in in that January camp game in 2020 against Costa Rica, then moving into, I believe, the November games were the, the next games after that uh against Wales and Panama and it's that four three three that Berhalter has changed to yeah in the past he possessed sometimes in a shape that roughly resembled that but defensively it was a 4-4-2 mid block when he first took over and I think he upgraded the defensive setup and, and made it more aggressive and changed it to that Liverpool-esque 4-3-3 press if you'd if you'd men in blacked me Taylor I assume you've seen men in black mm-hmm. and they have that little uh, that little you know clicker thing that makes you forget flashy stuff. thing. yeah the flashy, flashy thing, thing. Mm-hmm. if you'd flashy yep. thing to me and, and I'd forgotten, you know, everything about this competition. And I'd forgotten that it was a U24 competition coached by Jason Kreiss. And then I, I'd, I'd opened my eyes and sat down in front of the computer and watched this game. I would have thought this was a Greg Berhalter team. And that's not to say, hmm. you know, that Jason Kreiss can't coach or whatever. I'm not, I'm not trying to get into that at the moment, but I'm just saying this team really strongly resembled the senior team, which I think is important. I think that's the type of, of tactical setup that the U.S. is trying to integrate all the way down from the U uh, from the senior team down to the U23s, down to the U20s, down to the U17s. This is the system that the United States is trying to run. Greg Berhalter is trying to change the way the world views American soccer. Those are his words, not about himself, but about what he's trying to do with this team right now, this senior team. And the way you do that, or at least the way you do that on the men's side of things, because the women are doing that in their own really impressive way, but on the, on the yeah. men's side of things, the way you elevate this men's program is by playing a, si- a style of soccer that makes you stand out. And the U.S. stood out yesterday against Costa Rica. The way they, they were trying to play and the style they're trying to execute is so hard. It's really challenging to put together. And the U.S. didn't do it flawlessly. But the fact that they emulated the senior team's tactics very closely made me happy because I think that's an important step to unifying the men's side of the program. So I don't
1: disagree with you, like fundamentally, I think where I maybe like take issue or have a slight difference is that I saw them doing some things that seemed very familiar, but I saw them not doing other things that I think limited what they were trying to do, and I will try to make that more clear, but I wanted to just, like, initially propose the idea that this is kind of my take on what you've said, Joe, and then I look forward to you, uh, tearing it apart and telling me why I'm wrong. But basically, it's that 433. I think what we didn't have as much, though, was so much creativity through the middle and I do feel like the senior team does try to do that at least a little bit I feel like they do try to pass and connect some some kind of sequences through the center through that midfield three I don't think we saw that as much yesterday against Costa Rica and I think that is A lot to do with the personnel that like like Hassani Dotson, I do think had a better game than I said in that live show, but I don't think was necessarily being trusted with combining in one twos and turning under pressure and picking up the ball and driving at opponents. I don't think that was what he was tasked with. I don't think Georgi Mihailovic really kind of stamped his authority down on this game. I saw him drifting wide a lot, so we did see a little bit of that. Rotation, But I didn't see him on the ball in the middle of the field so much. And I felt like they ended up having to go fullback and then down the channel, maybe more than they would have liked. And that's where I'm interested in your perspective on. Do you agree that that's a thing that kind of kept happening? And if so, do you think that was by design or because they didn't have the creativity to play through the middle?
2: I think it was more by design, and that's a good point, because especially in the second half, Taylor, I noticed the U.S. going long and going more direct, especially to the wingers, Jonathan Lewis and Benji Michelle, and then Sebastian Saucedo later in the second half as well. I noticed them playing more direct, but I don't think that means that the midfielders that Jason Christ has aren't trying to do the same job as the senior team. If you think about in January and in November, the two kind of big data points that we have for the U.S. senior team the central midfielders back in January, Jackson Yule was the sixth. We see that again in this game. And then it was Sebastian Legette as the left center mid, and then Brendan Aronson, I believe, as the right center mid. And then November, it was Tyler Adams as the sixth, different profile than Jackson Yule. And then it was Weston McKenney and Eunice Musa starting as the two central midfielders in both of those games. If we look especially at November, Weston McKenney and Yunus Musa are creative players in certain ways. They're good at driving the ball forward. They can play some passes, but they're not through ball threaders. They're not hyper-creative players. They're not playmakers. Hassani Dotson mm. and Georgi Mihailovic I don't think are, are playmakers either. I think especially Dotson fits into that Weston McKennie, yunus Musa role really well. He's a, he's a high pressure player. As in, yeah, that's a really terrible way to phrase that. He can press high up the field. He covers ground. He does the dirty work in midfield so that the center backs are the number six. We didn't see that from Jackson Yule in this game because of how Costa Rica marked him out of the game. But so that, that the U.S.'s creative players deeper down the field can, can play those passes. Dotson and Mihailovic or, you know, McKenny and Musa or Leggett and Aronson. They kind of do the dirty work, and it does change slightly based on the profile. And I think we'll talk about this more later with the senior team and their roster, and I think we might see some different things there. But based off of Dotson and Mihaljevic, the two center mids that Jason Christ picked in this game, I actually do think that those two players fit into the positional profiles that Berhalter is is using and has used for his central midfielders in the 4-3-3 that we've seen starting in 2020. So, But do you agree then
1: that there wasn't as much creativity through the center or did you see moments of that that sort of make you okay with these this caliber of player being the player that are starting there?
2: Not a lot of creativity through the center. Again, I think that has a lot to do with what Costa Rica were doing. The center backs, because of how Costa Rica defended the midfield really tight and compact, that put the impetus on Justin Glad and Mauricio Pineda to be the creators. I don't think in this game it was ever going to be Dotson and Mihailovic and even Jackson Ewell. Making a lot of plays in midfield on the ball because they just didn't have a lot of time or space to do that. I thought Dotson especially found good spots between the lines to receive the ball. But then because there were so many players around him, all he could do was just lay the ball off quickly or turn quickly and play a quick pass up to the forward line or or laterally to a fullback on his right side. I don't think the game was set up for them to really have dominant creative performances, though I could be wrong, Taylor. I'm not I'm not saying this is the only way to look at it, but I don't know. No, I think you, I think you're not. I, I think my my like overall read and rewatching this game
1: is that I think and, I, and this isn't even a negative. I think it's understandable why you would do this, but I think this was. A, a slightly more cautious approach from the U.S. I think you're right that they didn't want to gamble, they didn't want to get like, try too much through the middle and get caught and leave themselves vulnerable to a counterattack right through the middle of the field I, I think it was, if you look at Jackson Ewell, for example, I agree that they man-marked him, they sat on him, he wasn't able to sort of have time and space, but I also think he wasn't really looking to create time and space, and that seems to have been a, a hotly debated topic, at least on the social medias, of should he have been moving? Uh, You know, Chavi didn't didn't just sit there and wait for the ball. He moved around. And, and I understand both of those perspectives. But I think when a player does or doesn't do something repeatedly, and in this case it's Jackson Yule not really vacating space, not trying to move out of the middle to open up for other players, I I tend to, after the first couple times, see that as a Deliberate pattern, as opposed to a de- like deliberate deficiency or an unintentional deficiency. And so, to me, that was him being told stay central, make sure that there's no quick counter-attacking opportunities through the middle. If one of the center backs moves forward, you fill in. I felt like he tended to drop in for Paneda more so than Justin Glad, but I think that's because Pineda, uh, to your original point about him, Joe, was the one who was responsible with bringing the ball forward and trying to play out. Sometimes that worked well, sometimes it didn't. But I do think that is that is sort of all to say that this was Jason. Jason. Jason Christ wanting to win and wanting to get the result, but fundamentally not wanting to lose this game. And I think he set his team up just a little bit more cautiously than maybe we'll see against uh, the Dominican Republic, for example. And again, I don't really blame him for that. I don't really even think that's a negative, but I do think it limits my ability to understand if this is the style of play that we'll see from this team going forward and if all of these players can play more creative attacking soccer because I think it was just a, a bit more of a, a cautious approach.
2: I think the best club profile, I've said this before, and I'm not the only person to have this thought, certainly. I think the best club profile for the U.S. and the best comparison to them at a club level is Liverpool. And that's a very generous one. But as far as the general style goes, I think Liverpool's mm-hmm. a really good relative comparison to how the U.S. are trying to play right now. If you think about Liverpool's yeah. midfield, you've got... I just, I just want to clear- clarify. I know people are like, like, what? What are you talking
1: about, Joe? And we should clarify. I'm assuming you're talking about the good Liverpool when they were winning consistently. Yes, But yes. I want to
2: emphasize, I am with you. I think this is a, a fair comparison. I remember Taylor. And, man, there are some real times where I miss, and, and a lot of times where I miss not doing these shows where I miss having Daryl and and you Mm -hmm. in my ears. Cause I remember a specific conversation. I remember where I was listening to it as well, hearing Daryl talk about Jesus Ferreira as Roberto Firmino, right? As that number nine who drops in. And I remember thinking, yeah, like that's, that's right. I hope people, I hope people see the connection because Daryl's not saying Jesus Ferreira is Roberto Firmino. He's saying that he's playing a similar role. And it's a fantastic point. You can start at the top and look at the Liverpool, the U S comparison jesus ferreira or that number nine often dropping in the wingers then running in behind we saw that with jonathan lewis and benji michelle running in behind and then the midfielders the midfield three and this is why i started this point initially you've got mm-hmm. them a lot of times as this all action trio jackson yule doesn't really fall into that category but the u.s doesn't have the personnel or the depth that liverpool does to have the exact profile spot on but you've got jackson yule as the number six or tyler adams as that you know all action number six and then it's two number eights it's when all them and and Tiago, who has a little bit more creative flair to him, or it's Winaldum and, and Fabinho or Jordan Henderson or James Milner or Alex Oxlade-Chamberlain. These guys that are really two-way players, less so for Fabinho in that regard. But you've got this all-action type of midfield. That, I think, is what the U.S. are trying to replicate. And it's going to change based on the opponent. I believe it's going to change. Maybe for the senior team, you see Christian Pulisic play as a central midfielder, even though he doesn't fit that Winaldom profile. Maybe you see Giorena in there, even though he's not this hard defensive runner. But roughly speaking against quality teams, I think the U.S. is in a spot right now where they're best suited and, and they most closely mirror Liverpool when they have two well-rounded number eights in that midfield in front of a number six. And that could be a yule style six. It could be an Adams-style six. But I think that's where the U.S. is going right now against tough opponents like Costa Rica was in this opening game.
1: Yeah, I also think the fullbacks of like fundamental importance to your attack, uh, feels very Liverpool to me. And I do also think that that's part of where we saw some build out problems for the US because especially in the first half, I think Sam Vines and Herrera, when the center backs were on the ball, would advance pretty far forward, and there were multiple occasions in which Pineda's on the ball. Sometimes it's Yule, sometimes it's Glad, and there is nobody around them for like 15 or 20 yards, and you can try to force a ball through the middle, or you can try to play it out wide. Usually, they end up going out wide, but the one that stood out to me the most was, flipping back in my notes, in the third minute, this is what I think the U.S. were trying to do, and I think Costa Rica had to adjust really quickly, but the ball goes to Pineda two different uh, Costa Rican players, Martinez and Ugalde step, like try to put him under pressure really quickly, but they do it from different angles. And he, while facing like the opposite side of the field, plays the ball basically behind him into space for Sam Vines. And then Sam Vines goes down that, that channel. And because of that press from Costa Rica and kind of pulling them out, now there's tons of space and that works really, really well. And I think that's why they keep trying to do that. The difference is that Costa Rica then adjust sit off a bit more those options and instead of it being a sort of low pass on the ground it becomes uh, necessary for a chipped ball over the top and that's when it starts going out of bounds. That's when you just get a little bit more erratic delivery but I could see what the US were doing and again that connects to the Liverpool idea of get it wide to your fullbacks who if they're in space they drive forward and now the opponent has to adjust. They can then combine in an overload with the wide attackers or the wide attackers can go central and the number nine who's a false nine and Jesus Ferreira can then drift to different pockets of space and try to kind of find some opportunities there. I see a lot of what you're talking about. I think that then invites the question of But if they don't have that midfield three capable of doing what Liverpool do or replicating what Liverpool do, why persist with that idea? Why not change it up? And I think the answer is because, number one, they want to do what Berhalter's senior team is going to be doing. They want to keep it consistent. But number two, you can't just, like, get rid of players because they don't specifically fit this one aspect of what you need them to do. You adjust it a little bit. And I think I still would have liked to see more movement from Jackson Ewell, but I don't think that he was necessarily the problem the way I I think I've other people put it. I think that they adjusted their game to he's not going to be Tyler Adams. He's not going to charge around the field, as you said. So don't expect him to do that. Don't ask him to do that, because then you're putting in, him in a position to fail. Try to play to his strengths while fundamentally doing a lot of the same things. And I think for the most part in the first half, that's what the U.S. did.
2: Yeah. And, and can we talk about like the, the general flow of the game? Because I think that would be helpful sure. for context. Maybe, maybe we should have done that earlier, but yeah. hopefully, hopefully a lot of folks watched it and have a pretty good idea of, of what happened already. But the U.S. started really strong in this game. Taylor, you touched on it just a minute ago. They started out really well, and I went back and rewatched it and had that realization of how good they were in the opening five minutes. They almost had a goal. Jesus Ferreira presses, wins the ball off of Costa Rica's right side at center back, takes a shot, it goes off the post, but I mean, the game almost took a, a really nice turn right at the beginning for the United States, but Even then after that, for the next few minutes, they start out well. They're moving the ball, especially up that left side with Sam Vines as the primary attacking catalyst, bending in balls from the left wing. And then after that, the mistakes start to creep in. They start, the U.S. starts to turn over the ball in bad spots. David Ochoa is called into action a few too many times for, I think, Jason Kreis' comfort. But it's a lot of self-inflicted errors for the United States that leads that that lead to attacking chances for Costa Rica. And that kind of continues until about the 30th minute. The U.S. can't really generate many chances. They're struggling to break down that block. Jackson Ewell's being man-marked, so he can't be the distributor Pineda and Glad are making mistakes left and right. And then right around the 30th minute, the 31st minute, things start to change. There's some good attacking sequences that I think then give the U.S. a little bit of momentum headed into their goal in the, in the 34th minute. Is that right, Taylor? Shoot, I just lost it in my notes. Yeah, 35th minute, goal. 35th yep. minute. From Jesus Ferreira, and I guess we can pause the game flow to talk about this, because it's a really nice goal, Taylor. How do we want to break yes, this one is. down?
1: I mean, I think we can start with uh, that. It, it is, despite him mishitting a few balls over the top, it's Pineda going again for that sort of near diagonal, is how I'll phrase that. It's yeah. not a long ball That's over the great top, term. but it's that sort of... Yeah, it, but it, that's, that's roughly what it is. But it's then Sam Vines, it's still a little bit overhead, and it's Sam Vines doing a great job to bring that ball down. And now, once again, as we're talking about, you have that channel a bit more open because you've bypassed some of the numbers that Costa Rica had set up. So we can go there with it, which is Sam Vines on the ball in the channel looking to play it in.
2: Yeah, Sam Vines gets that ball. As you said, it's a great touch. He moves forward up the left side and then bends the ball around, like, yeah. he, he bends the ball into the box. It's low. It's on the floor. It's a, it's a beautiful ball from Sam Vines, right in a spot where it's really difficult for Costa Rica to deal with it. And they can't deal with it. They get a little deflection on the ball, but it's Benji Michelle and Asani Dotson, my, my favorite, who run into the box and force Costa Rica's far-sided center back and far-sided fullback down almost to the end line. And so they've, they've drawn those players down. They've sucked those players down closer in to the goal. Which then leaves space for Jesus Ferreira, who's had a really nice late arriving run in the box. He's not, he's not really bothered to get there too quickly because he knows what runs are being made around him. So he surveys the field really well. Ferreira does eventually crash in and cleans up the ball that Vines, that Vines plays in that took a little deflection and finishes. It's an easy finish. Really nice movement from Dotson and Michelle to, to occupy those Costa Rican defenders. Really nice ball from Sam Vines and a a great finish from Jesus Ferreira. You can't ask for much more. No, you cannot. Uh But I I will add
1: a few more details there. First of all, you say they run into the box. That is the definition of crashing the box. Yeah. Uh Dotson and Michelle are both at full speed trying to get on the end of that cross. And what that does, even if they don't, is it makes the defenders have to react with the same level of intensity, which pulls them out. And now they're reacting to a cross and not necessarily paying attention to their marks. For Michelle, I thought it was... Especially good. Stu Holden, always, uh, very good at this, caught it in the moment, but he does then realize that ball is there for Jesus Ferrer to hit first time, and he gets out of the way. And that is such like an underrated thing to not Potentially, because we've seen that before, where a player's standing in an offside position, the ball is hit, and then there's the question of, are they involved in the sequence? Should that goal be chalked off? And I think him just vacating the space as quickly as he can, it really is like, oh, that ball's getting hit, and he runs out of the way. That's great vision and awareness from him. But it's also really great vision and awareness from Jesus Ferreira, to your point, the late-arriving run. Um, we should clarify that it starts this whole sequence with a throw-in on the right-hand side from Herrera to Glad to Pineda, and then there's that diagonal. Maybe Jackson Yule's in there too. But Jesus Ferreira has gone all the way back to be in a position to receive that throw-in, and then rather than sort of turn and sprint forward because the ball's been played forward, Joe, you're absolutely correct. I think he recognizes, I don't need to do that. There's already people making that run. Let me hang back and evaluate the situation, and it's that sort of next level awareness that is so hard to have as a forward because you are drilled, be in the box, get there. You got to be the one who's trying to put pressure on. You got to make the goalie make a decision. And so for him to kind of not do that, but instead recognize people are already doing that. Let me put myself in a good position to if that ball spills, I can get a good clean shot from a very good angle. And that's exactly how that went down. So I thought the goal itself was good, but the overall buildup from the U.S. was also good. And then the awareness from Jesus Ferreira was excellent.
2: I would say the cherry on the top. I would as well. Before before we started recording, Taylor, you texted me, ah, I'm gonna watch yep. a little bit of Mexico and the Dominican Republic and their game that happened yep. right after the US's game. Mexico wins that four to one. Not unexpected, right? Not not an unexpected result. But you sent me that text and I was like, well, you know, I don't want to be shown up here. I want to watch some too. So I went and watched <laughs> the first thirty minutes sure. of that game and I watched the goals. Mm-hmm. Yep. And Mexico generated a lot of their attacks by having their central midfielders and their four three three, so their two number eights, making late arriving runs into the box they had those two guys running into the box late after the defense had been sucked down closer to the end line. That's exactly what happened here for the U.S. Jesus Ferreira almost ran in as a central midfielder instead of as a striker. And I just want to give credit in a weird, twisted way to FC Dallas because they've played him a lot as a central midfielder. (laughs) Uh, Maybe maybe there's a tie in there, but just to give listeners an idea of a little bit of how Mexico attack and then also about how Jesus Ferreira made that run. It's a really great run. He's patient. He runs like an eight and not as much like a nine. I would agree with you. Still a little bit more to talk about from this game
1: and looking ahead to the Dominican Republic, then uh, the senior roster, some Champions League draw. But first, a word from today's sponsors.
0: This episode is supported by Season 3 of FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League 2 after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the city's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher division. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenges and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. Catch all new episodes Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, We are
1: back and we are going to talk about the second half, which I think last night when we did the live show, I was inclined to say was fundamentally different from the first half. I felt like the U.S. was more erratic, more panicky. I think they were a bit more reactionary. They attacked down the channels. Um in watching it again, I feel like there's not that much uh, difference between the first and the second half. I think it's just that Costa Rica pressed more often, pressed more readily, and caused more discomfort to the U.S. But watching the first half again and realizing how often they targeted the flanks and tried to get in behind and really did prioritize, again, the Liverpool analogy, kind of 1v1 take-ons from uh, Jonathan Lewis. From uh, It was Jonathan Lewis on the left, right? Yeah. Okay, thank you, uh Jonathan Lewis on the left and from Benji Michelle on the right, and even when Buffa Salcedo comes in, same thing. I think th- those wide attackers are told, take people on, go at people, make something happen almost on an individual level, and see what you can do. And I felt like they were still trying to do that. I think Costa Rica, uh, just as you've already said, Joe, like had the lungs, had the legs, and were able to weather that a bit more, apply more pressure, and cause more problems for the U.S.
2: Yeah, I think in the first few minutes of this game, I could hear Jason Christ yelling at Jonathan Lewis to take someone on. And I'm guessing that continued yeah. into the second half. The U.S. went more direct, partially because Costa Rica was taking it to them. Costa Rica controlled this second half. Forced the U.S. back into more of a 4-5-1 block instead of a 4-3-3 press. So the U.S. Yep. was more congested, more, you know, more pinned back in their half because of how dangerous Costa Rica's wide players, uh, how dangerously they were attacking. It was Luis Diaz and, and, uh, Randall Leal mostly on that right side with Ian Smith overlapping. That caused the U.S. a lot of problems. They almost always had a 3v2 on Vines and Mihailovic or Vines and Jackson Ewell once Andres Perea comes in and plays as the six and shifts Ewell to that left-sided number eight spot. Costa Rica looked really good, and Taylor, the U.S. looked tired. That was my biggest takeaway yeah. when I watched this game back. I didn't think about it as much, but we talked about it already in this show. The U.S. is not in season. Costa Rica is in season. Yeah, Luis Diaz and Randall Leal actually aren't, but the rest of that squad is, and when you're not having to do as much running all the time, that gives you a boost for these late-game situations because the players around you have been doing the running all game long, and they're fit and ready to do that. So Leal and, and Luis Diaz looked pretty sharp and pretty fit throughout this entire game, but we saw rust from the U.S. in a couple ways. I think in the first half, we saw it with a lot of sloppy turnovers. We saw that in in the second half some as well. But then in the second half, really, we saw just a lot of tired legs, and the U.S. lost control, and I was a little bit concerned about that after first watch, but then taking a breath and realizing you know, some context in this game, how these guys aren't playing, I think it's okay that the U.S. sat a little bit deeper. They were trying to get this result because this is a must-win game in terms of your ability to qualify for the Olympics, and the U.S. did enough in their lower defensive shape to make that happen.
1: Yeah, because I, I think, I think you're right, because I think if you look at the way Jason Kreiss adjusts his team, you talk about that substitution where, uh, Perea goes sit and sits, uh, in the middle, Jackson Ewell goes like out to the left, Georgia Mihailovic comes off, and then later on in the game, uh, after he's already brought on Bofos Salcedo, to be more like, I think, of an attacking outlet to sort of go at uh, Costa Rica, hopefully drive them back a little bit and just sort of be an attacking threat, I think there's an awareness of that really hasn't had the intended effect. Diaz is still able to sort of create overloads and get down the U.S.'s left-hand side, Costa Rica's right. So that's where you see Julian Arajo comes on. Sacedo goes to the right-hand side, and now Arajo is tasked with probably staying back and blocking that off and giving more defensive support. And I thought those adjustments were good in-game uh, changes to deal with what Costa Rica were throwing at the U.S. For Costa Rica's part, I think, I already talked about the one time that their sort of press was bypassed in the second minute. I think the blueprint for their second half is in the 17th minute. That's that moment where uh, we have Pineda get robbed because he's a little bit slow on the ball and ends up with a great save from David Ochoa. But I think that was maybe coming out of uh, for the second half for Costa Rica. They had kind of pinpointed that as these guys are... Sort of slow on the ball. They're expecting to have time on the ball. They're not going to try to play through the middle. They're not going to try to create through the middle. And certainly, as they're seeing out the game, they're not going to try to do that. So let's go at them. Let's make them more uncomfortable. I think they did that. I think they succeeded. I think that's a big reason why the U.S. looked sloppier in the second half as well as the fatigue and with that in mind again like that's a thing that we've seen happen at senior level at youth level where they're up 1-0 and they end up losing 2-1 because you concede one goal but you've made these defensive changes now the momentum is with the other team maybe they get a second goal late in the game or sometimes maybe it's that equalizer late in the game and so again not the prettiest result not the prettiest game overall but for the united states to get a 1-0 win in the opening round of a qualifying competition that they needed to win. They needed to win this game. They definitely needed not to lose it. And I think more than anything else, that's the takeaway. They won. They got three points. They scored a goal. There were some positives. There were some negatives. But you can address those and deal with them. But overall, a result is a result.
2: Yeah, I don't disagree with any of that. I think you're spot on there. Taylor, before we leave this game, do we want to do kind of like... Best performances, worst performances, or at least best performances to highlight some of the guys in, in maybe just a little bit greater detail that really balled out in this one.
1: Yeah, I mean, we've talked about Jesus Ferreira. I would just emphasize that, uh, aside from scoring the goal, I thought he was a big reason why there were some c- c- cases, especially in the first half, when the U.S. could play through the middle, because he would, there were times when he was like standing next to Jackson Ewell, and now you've got a 2v1 with that man marking system. There were times when he would like overload one side if George Mihailovic went out to the left wing. Jesus Ferrer would fill in there and receive the ball, and I thought he was not just moving into that space, but you could see him demanding the pass, and in a game when distribution was at times erratic, I will say that there are, are games in which I don't feel like I can take a risk, there are games, this is obviously at amateur level, but when you're playing a very good team you're just a little bit less likely to try to force a ball in than when you're 3-0 up on a team where you think you can pull it off. And sometimes you need that teammate to say, play the ball to my feet, I want the ball. And it almost like removes responsibility from you to, like, if this person is screaming for the ball and demanding it, to some extent you're like, well, I better play it to them. And I think, weirdly, it removes some of the decision making and instead you're playing by reflex. And I think that is what you're aiming for in soccer is to always be playing by like the mental reflex that you've trained for and built up. And Jesus Ferreira demanding that ball, wanting that ball in space, I think helped calm people down a little bit in possession. So he was one who on second viewing, I liked even more than I already liked on first viewing. And I liked him a lot on first viewing.
2: I'm with you on Ferreira. I think Sam Vines did nothing to dissuade me from the fact that I think he should be in the U.S.'s best roster right now. The, the top roster for whatever mm. competition Berhalter's yeah. prioritizing this summer. David Ochoa, we talked about him already. He was phenomenal in this game. I do think Asani Dotson was really good. And maybe that's just because I didn't know what to expect from him coming in. But I posted a couple of clips on Twitter of him covering <laughs> a ridiculous amount of yeah. ground, beating players that he had no business beating to a ball and then driving the ball forward, breaking the game open, or, or providing a, an important pass to key an attacking sequence. I thought he was really good as well in this game. And then I really like, quickly, I really like Andres Perea. I, I know we saw him against Trinidad back in January. He was, he was good in a lot of moments and, and really poor in other moments, just inconsistent in his first cap. I thought he was strong coming off the bench in this game. The way he moves and the way he passes the ball really intrigued me. I think he's got a big upside. I'm excited to see him more with Orlando City this year. So yeah, those guys are, are definitely my standout performers from this game.
1: So I, I gotta say, Joe, uh, I love that you, what was the tweet you put out? Was it a, a love story? A two
2: part love story because there were two clips.
1: Yes. And I think, uh, it made me really happy because we, at the end of our recording last night, we kind of talked about like what are some things we're going to try pay, try to pay attention to. I had said I didn't always love Dotson's positioning. You were sort of more optimistic about his game overall. Watching it again, those two moments I have in my notes as being the moments of like, yeah, I was too harsh on Dotson. Like <laughs> he did he did a lot on the ball as well as a better job off the ball than I thought he did. And then I saw your 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 tweets, and it made me even happier because I was like, yep, I agree. Dotson was good. <laughs> okay. My bad, Joe. Good call by you.
2: We're on the same page, and he wasn't flawless. He's still raw on the ball, Mm -hmm. and at this point in his career, I'm not sure that's really going to change. But he does a lot of things really well, and I think is a good fit for that number eight profile that Berhalter seems to be moving towards. So I'm here for it.
1: Yeah. I, I am as well. Uh I talked about him already. We talked about him a lot on the stereo show. And I feel like that's probably why we haven't talked about him as much. But just emphasizing again, David Ochoa really or David Ochoa really, really, really strong performance uh at a time when they absolutely needed that. You need that feeling of security behind you. If he does mishandle one or if he does have an errant pass again, I think it, it just hurts the confidence a little bit. You're not quite sure if they're going to be as rock solid if you play the ball back to them. So, you know what, maybe I won't play it this time. And I think there were never any concerns for me with uh, with uh Ochoa in goal. Uh The final little thing I wanted to mention and then we will definitely move on because I think we've done plenty about this game. Uh You mentioned the Dominican Republic's 4-1 loss to Mexico. I did also uh, take a look at that one just because I wanted to sort of have an idea of what they're going to do, what the United States can do. Joe, my read was when they're attacking, they're in a relatively tight 4-4-2 when they're defending it almost becomes a 4-2-3-1 uh, with one of those kind of front two uh, dropping into the right hand side uh, and I thought they the other thing I noticed from them was that they crowded numbers on one side of the field or the other so if Mexico has the ball with their left back I, I routinely saw like Dominican Republic's like left winger and left back Basically, playing centrally, like mm. they really crowd numbers to one side, and I think try to make it really hard to build out. Those are a couple of things I noticed. Did you uh, notice those too? Do you agree with those, or are there other things that you spotlighted?
2: I noticed that they changed their shape at one point. They started out defending okay. in, in a low to mid four five one block, and then they switched yeah. it. I think to that four four one one, that four two three one that you're talking about. That can get narrow, but the Dominican Republic's mo is to sit deep in their half, make life difficult for you, congest space. And then attack pretty directly when they do get on the ball. And I think those are things that the U.S. has likely been expecting. And hopefully they'll be ready to break down a block because I think that's going to be their biggest task against the Dominican Republic.
1: And the way Mexico get their opener for people who haven't seen it is they stay focused on that left hand side of the field I kept waiting for, like, the big switch or the big swing around to the opposite side. And you're kind of trying to pull the, the Dominican Republic apart or stretch them out. And then you've got openings to attack. And they didn't do that. They basically just kept combining down that left-hand side, and then it's across into the box, and it's the late-arriving runs that leads to that first goal. And that was a thing that they had already been trying in that first half. And so I think the United States continuing to go down the wings, but just maybe getting a little bit sharper there. But then having people crashing the box again, I think that's going to open up some opportunities. Mexico's second goal is from a good set-piece delivery, but there's nothing really fancy about it. It's just... Uh, the Dominican players not doing a very good job of tracking. They let their marks get goal side or they let their the people they're supposed to be marking get goal side, and it's a goal. I think I contrast that with George Mihailovich's delivery on his set pieces. Sometimes good, sometimes the corner is under hit, and Glad has to kind of stoop the head it. Sometimes the free kick is struck wide. There was another set piece where he went for like sort of a designed one, but nobody was on the same page and he just passed it straight out of bounds. I think the U.S., maybe if they spend a little bit more time practice, practicing some of those set pieces, I think that will certainly help them so i hope we see the u.s looking sharper on set pieces and maybe getting a goal there uh and then opening up the dominican republic from there
2: yeah i'm excited that game is sunday evening sunday afternoon depending Mm -hmm. on where you are and uh, we'll be talking about it once it happens we'll have another show on that that's right isn't it taylor that is correct. My friend, I think my my plan is to uh either be
1: on the weekend review with Graham and Ryan or let them handle that one. And you and I can talk a little bit U.S. and Americans abroad on Monday. But either way, we will have a, a review show of that one out early next week. Anything oh, yeah. else from the USA's one no win over Costa Rica, Joe, before we move on? I don't think so, Taylor. All right. We've 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 gone long on that one, but I'm OK with it because, again, meaningful soccer
0: is meaningful and exciting. Less meaningful but still significant
1: would be the uh, U.S. senior team's upcoming friendlies. March 25th, we are playing Jamaica in Austria, of course. 1 p.m., that will be on ESPN2, UniMaus and TUD, uh, TUDNA. Uh, March 28th, 12 p.m. coverage beginning, which means I think probably 12.30 kickoff. Northern Ireland in Belfast, that one's on Fox. First of all... Of course, the game that's on ESPN2 is listed at 1 p.m., and the game at 12 p.m. is listed as coverage beginning at 12 p.m. when it's on Fox. (laughs) Fox did this to me again last night. They started not at the time that they said they would, just a little bit later. Joe, why must they do this? I don't know, man. I don't know. Uh, it,
2: it, it, It really perturbs us all. Let's just put it that way.
1: Alright, all right, let's put it that way And let's just instead talk about this roster Which we do now have We haven't yet discussed, Joe So let's maybe take it position by position uh, Just kind of general thoughts Are we okay with it? Any outliers? Anything we're most excited to see? Starting with goalkeepers We've got Ethan Horvath from Club Bruges Chituro Donze, the aforementioned Sort of, from Leicester City <laughs> yeah. And Zach Steffen of Man City It still feels like Zach Steffen is our, our number one Until somebody really, really rises In Greg Berhalter's estimations but for now, I think it's Stefan for sure. The number two spot, I think, is a bit more wide open. And it could be Horvath. Maybe it's Odunze. Maybe it's Ochoa after this game. Brad Guzan, I think, is theoretically still in that conversation. Lots of other names potentially as well. <coughs> Matt Turner. Joe, where <coughs> are you Turner, on sorry. our... our...
2: <coughs> Matt Turner.
1: <What? laughs> Excuse me, Matt Turner, of course. I apologize. I apologize. <laughs> Please, MLS Twitter, don't come for me. Uh, yeah, Joe, where are you on what you would like to see here? Would you like to see Stefan starting one game and then Horvath and Odunze splitting halves? Would you like to see uh, like Horvath or Odunze get a whole game? Is there anything in particular you want to see from the goalkeepers in these friendlies?
2: I'd like to see two full games from Zach Steffen. There's really no okay. reason why I wouldn't. I don't think even Ethan Horvath or Odunze are in contention to be the number one or even in the top three. Maybe Maybe Horvath is third. I don't know. But Zach Steffen is not not having to leave the camp early. There are seven players on this roster that are going to have to go after the Jamaica game because of COVID restrictions in the countries that they play in. So all of the Bundesliga guys, I believe that's six of them. And then uh, Tim Weah for Leo. Oh, and and uh, Reggie Cannon from Boa Vista. So five Reggie Bundesliga, mm-hmm. then one uh, from the Portuguese first division, and then one from League. Uh So you're losing players. Bruce Cannon, but...
1: Richards, Adams, Reyna, Weah, Sergeant.
2: Perfect. You're losing all of those guys, but you're not losing any goalkeepers. So give Zach Steffen mm-hmm. the reps. Let's see what he can do. Continue to get looks at him distributing and shot stopping. I don't think I could ask for much more.
1: Uh I don't think I could either, and I don't think I'll be able to ask for much more. If things go the way they I think they will when it comes to our defenders, for reasons you've already mentioned, we've got 10 defenders on this roster. John Brooks, Reggie Cannon, Serginho Dest, Aaron Long, Matt Miazga, Eric Palmer Brown, Tim Ream, Brian Reynolds, Chris Richards, Anthony Robinson, Aaron Long, the lone MLS player, uh, making it into the defensive ranks. Well done, Aaron Long. But it is John Brooks leaving, as you said, after that first game. It is Chris Richards leaving after that first game. To me, that says we're going to get a John Brooks, Chris Richards partnership for that first friendly against Jamaica, uh, which could could or will feature Mikel Antonio now that he has officially switched his allegiance. I don't know if that paperwork has to be filed or what will have to happen to make that
2: occur. But I do think we're going to get Brooks and Richards playing together. Joe, are you on that same page? I'm on the same page, and it's it's that that opinion and outlook is only strengthened by the fact that those two guys have to leave. Even if they didn't, mm-hmm. I'd hope that that would be the first choice center back pairing. Okay. Chris Richards, I think, has earned it with his time at Hoffenheim, and and hopefully he would continue to show that in camp, so he could really earn it in front of Greg Berhalter. But those two guys are the two best center backs in the pool right now, in my view. There's no reason for them not to start against Northern Ireland, and then against Jamaica, excuse me. And then maybe you get Miazga and Long or, or Ream and Long. I, it doesn't really matter mm-hmm. in the second game, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> <laughs> it just it just doesn't um, it doesn't right yeah. I mean, yeah
1: yeah that's fine and we are gonna do more of an in depth preview as uh, we get closer to these games but there's lots of other soccer between now and then Uh the other one we've already said Reggie Cannon will be leaving after the first game do you think that means we are locked in to get Reggie Cannon starting at right back and if so does that move Des to left back in your mind does that mean Anthony Robinson is there do you think we might see Tim Ream in the return to the kind of left center back
2: experiment I think the two most likely full back pairings in game one. Are Reggie Cannon at right back, Dust at left back, or Dest at right back, Robinson at left back, and we just don't see a start from Cannon? Maybe he comes off the bench yeah. and plays the last 30 minutes of the, of the second half. And and to be honest, I guess maybe I'm just kind of – I'm not apathetic about this. I'm really excited about these games, but I'm I'm finding it really hard to be bothered one way or the other about – If it's Cannon and Dest or Dest and Robinson, I don't think it'll be Brian Reynolds starting this first game. He could get minutes. He could get a start in the second game or maybe just minutes off the bench in the second game. Yeah, I don't think we'll see Tim Ream as a left back. I think the the positional profile that Berhalter has for that spot has moved away from the stay at home left back. But yeah, I mean, I'd, I'd like to see Dest get a start. And if it's Cannon or Robinson against Jamaica, I'm not really too fussed one way or the other.
1: Um, I'm not saying this is a thing I want to see happen, but I I do, to your point, feel like maybe we're gonna start seeing fewer center backs called in. I feel like Tim Rehm might be one of those that we don't see as regularly going forward, but we'll have to keep an eye on that one. Uh, but you mentioned Brian Reynolds. I, I think this is also, like, I'm really excited to see him. A lot of this roster is just sort of like, yeah, that makes sense. Good for them. And this feels like a, like, hey, good for you. Way to make that move. Way to make your debut for Roma. I'm sorry the commentator didn't like you for whatever reason, but we're gonna put you in camp. Yeah, that feels like a getting a few minutes, like 10 or 15 minutes at the end of one of these games, and that will be fine. But yeah, congratulations to Brian Reynolds. Anything else about the defense before we move to midfield
2: this is not an original thought from me i saw it from matt doyle who wrote a column a good column on mlssoccer.com about this roster and these two upcoming games and and doyle was saying that it's possible we see a three at the back shape from the u.s maybe in that second game against northern ireland which could explain why there are so many center backs on this roster there are six of them all told you lose two you still have four for the second game maybe we see a three something something Mm. like we saw against jamaica in that pre-gold cup friendly Back in 2019, I think 2019. So just something to file away. Again, not an original thought from me, but something that I do think is technically possible. That would make sense because
1: you usually I mean, if you've got 10 defenders there, usually what you're going for is your starters and then cover for your starters, which would be eight. If you're going with a back three plus two wingbacks, now you need 10. And that's what we've got. I feel like that's some some good math by Matt Doyle, but I'm giving you the credit instead. So good work by <laughs> you, Joe. <laughs> Thank you. I, I appreciate that. I will take credit over Doyle literally any time. That's fair, and you should. Uh, in <laughs> midfield, seven players. Brendan Aronson of RB Salzburg. Red Bull Salzburg, I guess we can say. Kellen Acosta of the Colorado Rapids. Tyler Adams, RB Leipzig. Luca De La Torre, Heracles. We've talked about him recently. Sebastian Legette of the LA Galaxy. Yunus Musa, Valencia. Owen Otisowi, Wolverhampton. Hi Yunus Musa, thanks for choosing the USA. It's very nice to see you. This could be a different roster with him not on it, and a sadder roster, I would add.
2: Yeah, this is a much, much more uh, happy conversation for having (laughs) Yunus Musa in it. I think we'll see I think we'll see him start one or both of these games. It's it's a quick turnaround. It's a Thursday, Sunday, which is what we're seeing from these U-23s down in Mexico as well right now. So I don't know how much repeat we'll see from starters who play against Jamaica if they play a full 90 or even if they play 60. But I think we'll see Eunice Musa start against Jamaica. We'll see Tyler Adams start against Jamaica as as a guy who has to go home after that first game. Then maybe it's Sebastian Legette or... I mean, it could be really a number of different guys. It could be Aronson, though I think he might be a better fit as a winger. It could even Taylor be Gio Reyna playing as a central midfielder or even Christian Pulisic. Even though those yeah. guys don't fit the profile that I feel like I, I kind of bent over backwards to detail earlier. And I'm going to look really bad. If that doesn't happen, but at the same time, I think I, I made it clear, we could see different players in those midfield spots depending on the opponent. If Baralthro just wants to get a look at Reyna as an 8 or Pulisic as an 8 in this new look tactical setup that's changed really since Christian Pulisic even had a chance to play for this squad last, we could see one of those guys play as an 8 without Weston McKinney because that's a big not- notable absence. He's hurt. He's still with Juve. They, they didn't have him coming to this camp because he's not fully fit. So there is an eight spot open, and I, it could be filled by Aronson or Leggett or Acosta or even Otisoe or De La Torre. I just named all of them. Or it yep. could be filled by Pulisic or Reyna. My money would go on Reyna.
1: I, I think that that's not, uh, an incorrect assumption because again, with players leaving after that first game, uh, from the forward line, we'll just go through them really quickly. Daryl DK, uh, Nicola Joachini, Christian Pulisic, Gio Reyna, Josh Sargent, Tim Wea. Reyna, Sargent, and Wea would be the three that are leaving after the first game. So, it stands to reason that you want to maybe see what Sargent can do up top. It seems like you'd want to give Timothy Weah a start out wide. And then you probably want to get Gio Reyna in there if he then has to leave. But I doubt you're going to sit Christian Pulisic. So it does make sense to have Pulisic and Reyna, like one as like that left sided at number eight, one like maybe out on the left wing and you can yeah. kind of have them rotate or see how that goes. I think your instincts are probably... Pretty accurate there, Joe. You never know what Greg Berhalter is going to do. Maybe he doesn't start Pulisic. Maybe he doesn't start one of those gentlemen who might be leaving. But either way, I wouldn't say that just because someone's listed as a midfielder uh, or someone's listed as a forward and not a midfielder doesn't mean that we won't get some p- positional rotation.
2: And we're starting to get to a point in the pool where good players are either going to be left off of rosters, no Matthew Hoppe, Mm -hmm. no Jordan Sibichu, no DeAndre Yedlin, partly due to COVID, but partly due to you can't really bring 87,000 players into a squad. So we're starting to get to that point, but we're also getting to the point where good players can't all play. The U.S. has more outfield players you'd love to see get a start in their natural positions that Baralter just can't accommodate right now, and that's a good place to be even though it's going to create some dissension amongst people actually watching these games.
1: I agree. And we will lose some of those players, some of those names. There's always going to be some conversation about why I know this person, why I know that person. And to that I say, a potential midfield of Tyler Adams, Eunice Musa, and Christian Pulisic, or Gio Reyna with Christian Pulisic out wide— Uh, I'm really excited about that. (laughs) Like like I'm sad Weston McKinney isn't here, but I just just feel like there's so many exciting players that we could get to see in these friendlies that we've seen before or not seen before, but haven't seen in this context. I just think it's a strong roster with a lot of fun possibilities and less like, I don't know how that's going to work. This doesn't make sense to me. Like, I just think, no matter what the 11 is in one game or the next, I think there's going to be reasons to watch and reasons for enthusiasm and reasons just to care because this team is getting better and there is depth there. And you never know who's going to break through next and who will become that regular player and who they'll supplant as a result. So I don't know, I didn't think I could be more hyped about this roster, Joe, but talking about it, albeit very briefly, has made me even more excited.
2: Yeah, it's a great group of players. A lot of guys I'm very excited to see. A lot of players who are age eligible to be playing down in Mexico right now with the U23s, but they're just not doing that because they're they're kind of too good. Like they've, they've made the move in their career where it's not as feasible for them to travel back and, and play these games while their clubs need them. So, yeah, I mean, it's a good reminder of where the pool is at right now and how far it's come. There's still so much more to go, but always it's always fun to be reminded of the fact that there are actually good American soccer players on the men's side right now. That
1: there are. Are there still good Americans left in the Champions League? A, ch- a look at the fixture says there are, Joe Lowry. Should we talk <laughs> Champions League? Anything else on the U.S. roster before we jump
2: to our final topic of the day? No, let's carry on. Nothing would make right. me happier to talk Champions, than, than talking Champions League draw.
1: All right. Uh, so Ryan and Graham and myself, uh, reviewed the second legs of this week's games and we talked about it, I think, very briefly. But I, I don't know, Joe, I just wanted to ask you, were you excited by like any of the games this week? Cause it felt like there were some interesting ones going into them. And then a lot of the games within like 30 minutes felt like they were pretty much over. It was, I guess what I'm saying is this felt like an anticlimactic Champions League week, especially compared to some of the results we got the week before.
2: W- what did you make of this week's action? I'll never say no to high level soccer, but pretty much outside of Chelsea, Atletico Madrid. Yep. And maybe Real Madrid, Atalanta. I don't, I don't think the yep. other two fixtures were. Super no. high stakes just because Bayern Munich were were pretty good in that first leg against Lazio. They were dominant at in moments. <laughs> yeah. And then, I mean, Manchester City never looked threatened by Mönchengladbach. So, yeah, certainly not the the pinnacle of Champions League action. But, man, I think a lot of good teams advanced and I'm really excited for these quarterfinal games. I just
1: went back and looked at my notes and can now tell you that I'm with you that I thought Real Madrid-Atalanta could be really exciting because I thought Atalanta would do different things and cause problems. I thought the same thing of Atletico. Both games featured a goal in the 34th minute. Benzema scores in the 34th for Madrid, uh, and it was Ziyech scoring for the, in the 34th for Chelsea. So it's the 34th minute that kind of killed both those ones off for me. My assumption would be that our quarterfinal round will give us some slightly more exciting uh, matches. Well, we're just going to go through them one by one. Uh, we've got Manchester City versus Borussia Dortmund, FC Porto v. Chelsea, Bayern Munich v. PSG, Real Madrid versus Liverpool. Joe, is there one of those that uh, speaks to your
2: heart more than any others? I love a good 2018 Champions League final rematch. But more than that, I think I love just the sheer speed that I think Bayern Munich versus PSG is going to be played at. That's also last year's rematch, isn't it? (laughs) yes oh my goodness yeah you're right last wow. year did I mean did soccer even happen last year Taylor like can we can we I, can't, I honestly can't can remember we say
1: what what I only know that because they posted Bayern Munich's winning streak and
2: I was like did yeah did they win the Champions League last year and I had to look it up <laughs> and they did so there you go that's, that's the only reason why I know that <laughs> I mean you've got Serge Gnabry and Leroy Sané sprinting down the wings Kingsley Coleman potentially as well and then you've got Killing Mbappe running, running circles around everyone. I think Mbappe is going to cause Bayern Munich some real problems. Their backline has struggled defensively. The whole team struggled defensively at some points this season. That's Munich's biggest weakness. PSG is well equipped to exploit that, just like they exploited Barcelona in the first leg. Um, and then I'm really excited for Porto Chelsea as well, just because Porto is playing spoiler. They spoiled Juventus' time in the Champions League. And I think that could play out in a way that That's going to really closely mirror how Chelsea played against Atletico Madrid in that first leg. Chelsea have to break Atletico Madrid down. They actually don't really do that, but they get a goal in transition in that first leg, courtesy of Olivier Giroud. Porto is going to play similarly to how Atletico Madrid played, and we're going to try to see Thomas Tuchel take a similar approach, break that team down, or find another way to get goals. That has me excited. And and the other games do as well. I'm not saying that Man City-Dortmund isn't a fun one. That's going to be Gonna be wild to see how Dortmund yep. manages to implode. Um And then, yeah, as I, as I said, the 2018 <laughs> Champions League final rematch—you really can't complain about that either. Uh, I mean, you've kind of hit the nail on the head there.
1: I think that's why initially I was like, ooh, City Dortmund, it's gonna be great." And then I was like, "But is it though?" Because it, it will it be feels fun. like Man, I think City it will weird. be juggernaut, and Dortmund could make it great. But you're right; it could also be three 0 in the first half of the first leg, and then I am less sad. If there's uh, but, Taylor,
2: if there's one player that can break Manchester City, it's uh-huh. Erling Haaland. It that is, is Erling Holland. and so that, <laughs> that, that is alone very true. makes this game so exciting. Great players simplify tactics. Erling Holland simplifies tactics and could make life miserable for Manchester City.
1: It's a good call because a big part of what City do with, we know, with the professional fouling and with trying to kind of limit service through the middle is to pin opponents back. But when you have Erling Holland, you always have that sort of long ball outlet. So have City do what they do, but negate that threat. It's a good call, Joe. And that's going to be really fascinating. Madrid-Liverpool, also really interesting because it's two sort of juggernauts. It's a rematch, as you said. And yet at the same time... It's two teams that have a lot of question marks around them right now. There's injuries, there's who fits the best, there's is this player still the best player for us anymore? Should this be the manager is a weird conversation that's being had about both of these clubs to varying degrees, which I don't fully get because, yes, they should be. Uh But I think that's like, it's almost the perfect draw because you're getting sort of two... Wounded animals that are also very, very good, and how they respond and what they do will be uh, really, really cool to see. But Bayern Munich versus PSG, I, I cannot wait for because it's similar in that it's Bayern Munich who have the appearance of being this juggernaut, but are having to start seventeen-year-olds in games because they don't have the depth, because they don't have the in- or because they have the injuries, having to rotate players and kind of figure things out as they go. Versus PSG under Pochettino, who. Uh, are never going to be accused of being the most consistent team, but I think he still has brought a level of confidence and maybe swagger to them. Uh, so how, how they deal with Bayern, what their setup is in that first leg with Bayern, I believe at home. Oh, we've got some good games, Joe. I love the Champions League.
2: So do I. And and they gave us a semifinal bracket. So it's going to be the winner of Bayern Munich PSG versus City and Dortmund playing on one half of the bracket. And then it's the winner of Real Madrid Liverpool playing Porto and Chelsea on the other side. And and I, part of me really wishes that we'd gotten to see a a Bayern Munich Man City final. But even then, the semifinals are set up to be really entertaining no matter who plays. So I'm so excited, Taylor. These games are going to be happening, these quarterfinal games, on April 6th and 7th. That's the first leg. And then the second legs will be played on April 13th and 14th. So we don't have too much longer to wait until we have more Champions League action right in front of us.
1: So on that one side, we do not. On that one side, so we could get City versus PSG going through, so the oil money derby. Uh, <laughs> or we could get Bayern versus uh, versus Dortmund, and we get the German derby, which means we'll get one of each going through. Is pretty much how that will work. <laughs> I'm here for the oil money derby, it's science. just to be clear. Yeah, I feel like there's a... Is it El Cashico? I forget what they call that one. That's
2: good.
1: That's good. All right. Uh, Well, Joe, I appreciate your taking all the time to talk about many different competitions with me today. Lots of exciting enthusiasm for soccer because soccer
2: is pretty exciting. Uh, Anything else to add before we call this one a day and go off to enjoy our weekends? I have nothing. Taylor, I hope you have a wonderful weekend. We don't usually get to record on Friday, so I feel like hopefully I'm sending you off into a slightly more relaxing weekend than you've had week. But uh, either way, I hope your weekend is enjoyable and uh, it's been a pleasure speaking with you, as always.
1: (laughs) Uh, Right back at you, buddy listeners. I also hope you all have a wonderful weekend and we will be back next week with a lot more soccer talk. But for now, thanks for listening and we will talk to you all again very soon.